I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 will be our text today, the last three verses of that chapter. That would be 15 up to 17. It has been so good to be going through these epistles uh, that Paul has written to the church at Thessalonica these last several months because, uh, as I've mentioned several times before, this was a very young church. There's lots of applications in these epistles for a young church. And so it's been very appropriate for us as a, as a, a body of believers who are gathered together uh, uh, trying to begin a, a new church by God's grace. The applications have been numerous and have been very helpful uh, to us as we uh, have been moving along these last several months. Uh, today's text is no different. It applies to us as well, and I will be given application to that as we go through this. It applies very specifically to us that we must stand firm and hold firm to the truth, hold fast to the truth. And that's a summary of what our text will be. But before we go there, I think it's important that we set the context of chapter 2. We did spend four sermons in the previous verses of chapter 2. With an attempt to try to be brief, the first 12 verses, the Apostle Paul has clarified that the day of the Lord had not come. I can usually outdo just about anything, but a Harley's kind of hard. <laughs> uh, windows are open for those listening in cyberspace. But anyway, um, the first 12 verses, Paul tried to clarify it and explain that the day of the Lord had not come. His primary purpose is that he did not want them to be deceived. They had been deceived into believing that the day of the Lord had come. Somehow they missed out on the resurrection. And so there's clarification given in those verses. Um, he tells them that it won't come until Antichrist and the great apostasy, the great falling away, must come first. But notice that he does not tell them to look for it and try to figure out when that's going to happen. Rather, they are to be ready for the coming of the Lord. At the end of that section, he spoke to those who are deceived that God had given over to believe a lie in verse 11 and that they are bound for judgment. And that's how that section ended. And then we looked last week, or last time, at verses 13 and 14, and there's a huge contrast to this day of the Lord, the, the judgment, and the, the, the Antichrist, and the great falling away, and God giving people over to believe a lie, and then finally the judgment. Notice in verse 13, it says, but, he says, but we should always give thanks to God for you. Brethren, beloved of the Lord. And then he goes on. It's a massive, huge contrast there. On the, on the left hand, you've got those that are bound for judgment, that have believed a lie. And then on the right hand, he believes that this church is altogether different. His hearers are altogether different than what he had been telling them about in the last several verses. Lest they be deceived, lest they be um, discouraged somehow from, from what Paul had been writing, he sets it forth very clearly that he thinks better things of the brethren in Thessalonica. Now those two verses we spent a whole sermon on and it really describes the whole complexity of God's redemptive plan. It's been called a mini-theology because it goes from before the foundation of the world when God elected an eternity past through effectual calling upon the hearing of the gospel being further sanctified and then finally being glorified. It's all there in those two verses. It's just an amazing um, passage of scripture. The whole work of salvation is covered. Last time we developed and proved the doctrine of election uh, from the scriptures. 
I noted that election has many benefits, and the primary benefits that it has is that it crushes human pride. When you come to terms with the realization that you have nothing to contribute to your salvation whatsoever, that is a humbling factor. And then on the other hand, if it humbles you, it exalts God, because He has everything to do with why you are a believer and why you are here today, gathered as God's people. It produces joy. It promotes holiness. There's a whole list that could be given. But notice that Paul shows in those verses that God also uses those regular means to bring about supernatural purposes. That is, the preaching of the Word of God as it must go forth. And then God effectually calling dead, dead sinners and making them alive so that they can respond to the Gospel by grace. And then verse 14 ended with the glorification there. So today in our text, we're going to look at verses 15 to 17, the last three verses of this chapter. You know, questions often arise when you're considering the doctrine of election. Maybe you're, you have a coworker, maybe you have a, a friend that attends another church that can't quite wrap their mind around the doctrine. They haven't really studied it out. And questions like this you'll hear. Why should a Christian be motivated to do anything if he's already predestined to go to heaven? Well, why should he do anything? You hear questions like that. Or, or, or how can one have assurance that he is elect? And I think in this passage of Scripture before us, these types of questions are answered. So consider that as we would go through it. Now, just by way of um, introduction, Paul's theology of salvation was never to produce an idleness or just a bump, like to sit as a bump on a log somewhere, an inactivity, if you will, now, because when you're talking about God's divine sovereignty, it sounds like, well, God's doing all the work. What should I do? Well, Paul would never say, well, you just do nothing. Just sit there and let God do all the work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we're to work out our salvation, but it is God working in us, is one passage. But I think even here in our text, you're going to see the response to God's divine sovereignty. Now, here's the imperative, and it's, we're going to see that in just a moment in our text here. Paul never would, would, would teach a truth and then expect there not to be action or to put feet to the truth. So he has set forth what God has done. Uh, to the one, another way to look at this, the great book on preaching by Carrick that he wrote, The Imperative of Preaching. The, the indicative has been set forth. This is what God has done. Now the imperative, this is to be your response. That's the application. And so... Think of that as we go through this. We're going to be looking at the imperative in our text today. So we have two main thoughts. First of all, hold tenaciously to the truth of the gospel, number one. Number two is that your motivation to do so is that God has given you comfort and hope, and it is from Him. So let's read the text, verses 15 to 17. Please follow along with me. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen. So the title of the message is simply taken from the imperatives in verse 15. Stand firm and hold fast to the truth. So the first point, 
you must hold tenaciously to the truth. Standing firm in obedience is really the real sign of election. God commands his people to obey him. And he says very clearly here, so then, brethren, I guess the so then we should comment on. You could think of that as the therefore, like it, in Romans 12:1, after all the doctrines been set forth in Romans 1 to 11, therefore, here's your response. There's several passages like that. Ephesians 4:1, after the doctrine's been set forth, here's the response. Therefore would probably fit better here, but therefore, or so then, brethren, this is what you're to do. And he gives the command, Stand firm. Stand firm and to hold to the traditions. We're going to comment on what the traditions are in just a moment. We're to stand firm and to hold fast or to hold tenaciously. That's, that's the force of the word here. They're present tense imperatives. So Paul makes great application of the whole chapter, of, of all the chapter 2, and that's to stand firm. Don't be moved by political upheavals. Don't be moved by religious apostasy and the falling away of denomination after denomination and soul after soul that profess Christ and their falling away. Don't be moved by these things. You stand firm. God is on the throne. He is still in control. And I think the apostle here is picking up something that he mentioned up in verse 3. Look up at verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you let no one in any way deceive you. And then there's a break there. I think he's picking up something up there. Where rather than being deceived, stand firm. That's what you should do. Don't be deceived, but stand firm and hold fast to the truth. I think he's coming full circle back to where he began there. Listen to how Lenski, uh, the German commentator, summarizes these two imperatives. He says this, it's a courageous, manly standing combined with a masterful, strong holding, both of which are wrought by the grace received. The Thessalonians were to not allow themselves to be disturbed. And I, he's taking all the way up to verse 2, remember? Look up in verse 2. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure. Okay? This is Paul's purpose of writing, that they not be shaken, that they not be disturbed from their composure and that they not be deceived, but rather to stand firm. Now this word stand firm, it's just stako in the original, and it, it means to stand firm, it means to persist or, or to persevere, it means to keep one standing, to not be moved, that the idea of not losing ground I think is in play uh, with this word. And usually when Paul uses it, the handful of times that he does, there's an object related to it. Okay? And you can probably think of some where he uses this word. One would be First Thessalonians 3.8. He says, stand firm in the Lord. Right? And or the best example probably of this word is First uh, Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. That's a whole string of imperatives. It's a a great verse there. But the idea of standing firm in the faith, standing firm in the Lord, he doesn't really provide an object here for us, but we're to supply the idea is a, is a resolute rectitude to stand firm in godliness and to stand firm in the truth. It's, it's very much connected to the next imperative, and then I think they are connected here, to stand firm and to hold tenaciously to the truth or to the substance of the gospel, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So, 
hold fast to the truth. Don't listen to the lies of Antichrist. Don't listen to the spirit of the age that would would want to pull you away from the truth. But Paul tells them to hold fast, or to hold, it can be translated hold fast as it is in uh, the book of Hebrews, the same Greek word, hold to the traditions. Now that, we have to explain that for a minute. Because traditions, there's a lot of ecclesiastical baggage with traditions, isn't there? When you talk about traditions, we can think of all kinds of things, the cultural traditions and ecclesiastical things. Probably the easiest way to talk about traditions is to think of the Roman Catholic Church and the many traditions that they have of lighting candles, even a tradition right here of keeping that candle lit, the Lutherans do. All of these types of ecclesiastical uh, traditions. Maybe you could add to the Roman Catholic Church, in addition to the Latin Mass, or I guess not all of them are doing the Latin Mass anymore, but the robes and the, we're calling the priest fathers and all that, you can add to it as it's becoming the newest tradition is to pay off lawsuits for the acts of the priest. Is to pay off these huge lawsuits. And two days ago, $198 million the Roman Catholic Diocese paid to over 100 victims. But is all tradition bad? Not all tradition is bad. Seven years ago, I started a tradition in Escondido to have an annual church family camp where we go up to the mountains and we hear the word. That's not a bad tradition necessarily. If you impose that on someone conscious, it can be bad. We have a monthly men's breakfast here. Hopefully it will become more of a tradition. Our family has traditions. My wife received some tradition that was handed down from her mother, I think, of the walnut French toast something or other on Christmas morning and now we've moved to an egg casserole but you know traditions can change and you don't impose those upon others the word paradosis in the original just simply means a giving over or objectively that which is delivered the substance of a teaching okay the substance of a teaching <clears throat> or a body of precepts now turn to Matthew chapter 15 because when this word is used in the Bible, oftentimes it is used in a negative sense. We want to set, make it very clear when it's negative and when it's positive. Matthew 15, of course, you know this chapter, much like Matthew 23, speaking against the Pharisees. And I'll probably skip over some of these verses for the sake of time, but let's look beginning in verse 1. And some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the command of God and for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Skipping down by, to verse 6, he is not to honor his father and mother, and by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So there, Jesus is talking about the traditions of the Pharisees, the traditions of the elders, and how they added to all of these things. And of course, he's condemning that practice. The traditions of the Jews, the traditions of men, when you impose that upon others, as they were in that context, it is clearly wrong. 
let's say if, if we sent out an email this week, in order for you to be acceptable in this church, you must come as a man, you must wear a tie to be spiritual or to be acceptable. That would be a man-made tradition, and imposing that on someone else's conscience is altogether wrong. But this word also has a positive side to it, as it is in our text. And actually, Moulton and Milligan brings out, outside of the New Testament usage even, it, it had a positive um, use. It was a reference to an early Christian catechism or a creed based on the sayings of Christ, something that would be handed down. And so when Paul here in our text says, hold to the traditions that you were taught, hold to the traditions, it's an present imperative of this verb, which means to have a masterful grip on a thing. And Paul draws no distinction between oral tradition, written tradition. The worth of the tradition is not in the means in which it's communicated, but in the quality of the content. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, very briefly. I'll show you this. 1 Corinthians 11. The word occurs twice. Actually, it's the verb in the second instance, but the verb form of paradosis. Um, Look at verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2 the Apostle Paul actually to begin in verse 1 be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you Paul is giving praise to this church because they are holding firmly to the traditions as he delivered them it to them and then look in verse 23 for I received from the Lord in the context of that Lord's Supper passage that which also I delivered to you that is I handed over to you that's the word and that's the verb form of the word that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread So it's something that is handed over, a body of truth, a system of doctrine that is handed down. It also occurs in 15.3. You don't have to turn there, but he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance as I received, as what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and raised. That summary of the Gospel there. The same thing, I delivered to you, I handed this over to you. So back to Thessalonians here. See very clearly, if you put these words together, the idea of standing firm and holding fast to the truth, the system of doctrine, while everything that Paul, Timothy, and Silas had instructed them, he is talking about perseverance. And you must persevere in the faith. What is the result of obeying these commands is that you will not be deceived. You will not be easily misguided. By every wind of doctrine that comes down, you will be able to stand firm because you know the truth of God. If the readers truly have faith in the truth, they will stand firm and hold faith to the, hold fast to the truth. And as I said, it was Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Those are the real authors of this letter. Those are the ones that were there in Thessalonica teaching and preaching and equipping and, and instructing um, back from Acts, Acts 17 it was them that were there in person handing this over and then by letter in 1 Thessalonians as they received the first letter already and then even by Timothy's visit one of the three was sent to them you remember um, in 1 Thessalonians 3 
where they rejoiced because Timothy had just returned. And also, when he says, it's interesting, when he, when he brings this up, whether by word or by letter from us, I think he's picking up, up in verse 2, where he says, we don't want you to be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. Notice, remember when he said, either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us. He's talking about, don't be disturbed about those things, but the real, when you know it is from us, that's what you're to cling to. I think Jude picks up on this idea of perseverance and standing firm in the faith when he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. There it is again. It's been handed down to the saints. And contend earnestly, stand firm, hold fast, so, brethren, perseverance is absolutely necessary for the child of God in the 21st century today. Particularly even as a, as a young church here in San Diego with all kinds of lies all around us, even the lie a hundred yards that way. There is lies all around us. There's deception around us. We need to persevere in the faith. We must. I like Spurgeon when he says, it was by perseverance that the snail reached the ark. We must persevere with such a mindset. Though it may be difficult, though it may be slow, we must continue on. Think of the one who trains for the Olympics. It's like eight years of training, four to eight hours a day, six days a week, and then you might win. (laughs) That's how you get into it. That's the kind of perseverance that we need in the Christian mindset. Think of John Calvin, one of the greatest theologians of all time, wrote the Institutes, a great body of doctrine, in addition to all the commentaries, in addition to other books, in addition to preaching, in addition to ruling in Geneva, and he was afflicted with rheumatism and and migraine headaches, and yet he was industrious with his life, and he pressed on, and he stood firm for the truth. And in light of these Thessalonian epistles, brethren, that we have studied, I think we should expect difficulty in our lives. It's easy to stand firm on a day like this. But when the rocks start coming and the car bombs happen and and there's all kinds of hostility against biblical Christianity, we must stand firm. And in the light of these epistles, this early church was being afflicted. Look back in verse 4. Remember when he says that we ought always to give thanks for you, and then in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. They were persevering in the faith, but it was in the midst of fierce affliction. Fierce the persecutions all around them. And he goes on to say that that's a plain evidence of God's righteous judgment and develops that principle of recompense that we spent a couple weeks on, that God will indeed repay those. And so just as this young church was standing firm, we too must stand firm. And so when we hear of a church that, that teaches a theology that you just raise a finger to Jesus and every single trouble in your life goes away. The wind is at your back. It's a life of ease. Is that the truth? Do we have a responsibility to say, 
you know, hope that they're a brother. That's not the teaching of the Word of God. That is a lie. That is a deception. A Christianity that promotes itself as one of, of, of ease, as an, as an oxymoron to the teaching of the Word of God. Consider Pilgrim's Progress, that great book, the character there, Mr. Byans. Those of you who read it, I don't know if you remember him, but he explains how his religion is different from Christian and faithful as they're dialoguing. Christian and faithful are talking about their difficulties along the way. He says his religion is different. Listen to what he says. It is true that my religion differs when compared with the more strict variety, but only in two small points. First, we never strive against the wind or the tide. Second, we are always very zealous in following religion that parades itself in silver slippers, and we love to walk when the sun shines and the people applaud. Many Christians think that way today. That religion is easy when, when, there's the, when the wind is at your back, when you have the silver slippers, when the sun is shining and, and men are applauding for what you're doing. This is why persecution is the great revealer of who is the true child of God. When persecution comes, it's people like this that vanish. They're gone. They're, they're, they're hiding. They're, they're, they're running. They're gone. It's the separation of the wheat and the chaff. And the freedoms that we now hold dear and that we have in this country called America, it's an anomaly to the history of Christianity. Just study church history for the last 2,000 years. Christians are being persecuted. They're being murdered. They're being harshly treated. They're being imprisoned. They're being killed for their faith because they say Jesus Christ is Lord and the world hates that. And they suffer. And they stand up for the truth. They stand firm. They hold fast to the truth. What we have in our country today, and we don't know how much longer we have it, things may change very radically during our lifetime. I think they very likely will. And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to stand firm and hold fast to the truth. Consider one other example Martin Luther, a great example, um, not without flaws, but a Roman Catholic monk, right? He's studying the scriptures, uh, he's teaching Romans in the monastery, he's studying the scriptures, the just shall live by faith. He, he, the, the Lord opens his eyes to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The Reformation gains steam, and the ecclesiastical leaders of the day do not like this. They call him a heretic, his writing's a heretic, they call a church council to die to burn, and they tell him, recant, recant of all of it, or we will declare you a heretic. Listen to Luther's response, and I hope this would be your response in such a day. Unless I shall be convinced by the testimonies of the scriptures, or by clear reason, I neither can nor will make any retraction since it is neither safe nor honorable to act against my conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. God, help me. That was his plea. That was his, his last words before this council. And as you know, he went into exile and hiding in a, in a castle. And what did he do there? Oh, woe is me. No, he translated the Bible into German <laughs> during such a time. Much like Bunyan when he's in prison. Oh, no. This preacher's in prison. Well, he writes Pilgrim's Progress and several other books. God uses these things in his sovereignty for good. Well, 
Let's move on. We saw how we must stand firm, how we must cling to the truth. And now more briefly, your motivation to stand firm is that God has given you comfort and hope. Let's read 16 and 17 again. But now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your heart in every work and word. The first thing we need to ask ourselves is, is this a prayer? A couple of commentators that I have good respect for say it's more of a prayer wish because God is mentioned in the third person. God's not evoked, you know, he's not directly. It's kind of, he's in the third person. But certainly this is something that Paul would pray. And Paul often gives a benediction or a praise that God would comfort and strengthen the church. We saw this in the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the break between the doctrinal and the uh, practical section where he prays for them. And uh, that Paul's pastoral prayer there. We see that God and his Messiah give believers the ability to obey. We've just been exhorted with two commands that if left to ourselves, we will fail. We will fail. You won't hold fast to the truth. You won't stand firm in the faith unless God has given you this comfort, this encouragement, this good hope. And, and He is the one working in you and it's in response to the fact that He has loved you and given you these things, comfort and hope, as a gift. It's similar to the command, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. This is probably right on your other page. But in everything, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Well, Paul just doesn't leave it like that. He tells them how to hold fast. In verse 23, that it is God Himself who will sanctify you entirely, enabling you to do such a thing. Notice the wording in verse 16, brothers and sisters. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father. Let's stop there. Do you notice anything different about that wording? Usually the Father is mentioned first in most cases. There's a few places where, where the Son is mentioned first here. I think it's, a, it's, it's an emphasis and it's, it's drawing back up to verse 14 there that we may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is why he mentions it. But there's also some theological implications um, for this as well. It demonstrates our Lord Jesus Christ's deity and his equality with the Father. That they are indeed one God and they have one purpose well, one, one main purpose. And yes, they have different offices, but they are one God with one purpose. And also, you won't see this in your English translation. Um, I don't think. I looked at the four main English ones. Notice it says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, in the Greek, himself is at the very beginning. It's to emphasize that it is Christ. And that's why we believe that this... Uh, emphasizes the deity of Christ and his equality with the Father. So notice that it's both the Father and Jesus that is the source of this comfort. And notice the aorist participles here. What have they done? This big, long, full title of the Father and the Son, who, notice in your Bible, has loved us and given us. He has loved us and given us. It's something that is done in the past. Something that includes all the blessings of redemption and salvation is communicated there. Uh, I and mean, when I see loved us, I think of John 3.16, a great verse that demonstrates God's 
unconditional love and sending His Son to die for unworthy sinners. And what gifts are given? He loved us and He has given us what? Eternal comfort and hope. A good hope, if you add in the adjective. That's what He has given us. Paul would refer to God as the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1. But then notice at the end of this verse, it's by grace. Notice he adds that there at the end. Does it really fit? Eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Well, I think that's very important for us to understand. And I think the by grace goes with the loved us and given us. It goes with the participles here. And I think it stresses that God's love and his divine gifts of encouragement and hope are all based on God's unmerited favor. That is, it's something that He has bestowed upon undeserving sinners who deserve nothing, nothing at all, and yet He bestows this upon them. This is remarkable. It's good to be reminded of this principle of grace. As you're here today to just consider once again, what do I deserve? And don't ever get to the place to where you say, God, give me what I deserve. Don't ever get to that place. But isn't it amazing? It's all based on his unmerited, uh, on the un, on unmerited favor. He has bestowed this freely upon his people. So he says, "We have received eternal comfort and good hope." The word hope follows the comfort here, and it only occurs three other times in the New Testament. And I'd like to take you to one of them. Each time, it indicates that comfort about a present salvation fuels encouragement and hope about future salvation. So our present comfort is altogether important for how much hope we have for a future salvation. Turn to Hebrews. Let me show you one of these. Hebrews chapter 6. And verse 18 and 19, for the sake of time. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. There you have the encouragement and the hope. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters into within the veil. And then look up in verse 11 and 12. He says, that, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there you have it, the, the, the hope pointing to the future promises there. And, and this isn't anything new. I mean, when Paul uses the word hope, it refers to a certain expectation of something that is... That is ours by faith. It's based upon the promises of God. It's based upon the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished in that work. And it's a hope that is real. It is a hope that is true. And it's a hope that is yours today. In First and Second Thessalonians, the context would, would mean that it would refer to Christ's final coming and all that that means that we will go to be with him forever. But notice it's not just a hope, it's a good hope. It's a good hope. He says, eternal comfort and good hope by grace. And, and this idea of good hope was used in the secular world to 
allude to an expectation of happiness resulted from a desired good. So that we've referred to, like in the secular world, like a family reunion, you know, an expectation of happiness, well, at least most families, <laughs> happiness and a time of being together and a desired good. But what is the desired good for Christians? It's that consummate time when we will go to be with Him and to see Him face to face when union with Christ will be really full and real for us when we will see it and we will see Him as He is and we will be seen as we are. And this comfort that, that comes from God does not end when we reach heaven. This is something to consider. This comfort and this, this uh, uh, encouragement it's an eternal comfort and good hope. Uh, do you think it ends when we reach heaven, when we reach the celestial city, to pick up on Bunyan's uh, term for heaven? No. As glory upon glory will be revealed to us throughout all of the ages, it continues to give us encouragement and hope and joy. And then in verse 17, he says, Comfort and strengthen your hearts. May he, that is, Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work. Paul's request for them is that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged um, in their hearts. And the result of this good hope expresses itself, and just like he said, in every good work and word. This is how it expresses itself. This is how a life of gratitude gives back to the giver, the one who has given all things. Right? We ought to have a deep-seated desire to give back to the giver. All that we do, all that we say, every word we will give an account for as we were reading for in, uh, reading in uh, family worship last night, even every thought, every single thought, that's why we need to take every thought captive. But here it is that every work, every word would be done unto the glory of God. To put it the way James put it, that we would be doers of the word. Or as John says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. So today, in conclusion, we saw that we're to hold tenaciously to the truth of the gospel, that we're to stand firm. And our motivation to do so is the comfort and hope that we have received from God. And I'd like to speak to those of you here who do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There's no way you can stand firm. The only thing that you can stand firm in is your unbelief, is your selfish ambition. Those are the things that you're able to stand firm in. You have no desire to be with Christ, to stand firm in Christ. Your desire is for yourself, and you need a radical change in your life. You need to realize that all of your words, all of your works, everything that you do, even if it's giving millions to the Croc Center or whatever, if it's, if it's not done for the glory of God and you're not a believer, they're but, as Luther said, splendid sins, no matter how nice they are, and you will be damned even for those. How you need to look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ. Consider that God the Father in all of His infinite holiness, when man fell in the garden, God sent His only Son to, to be a substitute for sinners who deserve wrath and that all we have to do is look and believe and nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling that should be the heart attitude of every person as they're being effectually called and as their heart is being changed so come to Christ today 
Don't be deceived. Don't harden your heart because look up in verse 11. For this reason, God... Well, in verse 10. And with all deception of wickedness and those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Every time you reject Christ, then for this reason, God will send a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. And then what's the purpose clause? In order that they all may judge, be judged who did not believe in the truth. Don't harden your heart. Because you harden your heart to the point where God says enough and you're given over and you are doomed for judgment. So come to Christ today. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. The gospel's simple. It, it shouldn't have to be complicated. Sadly, men have added to the gospel and added requirements. And uh, the gospel is very simple. Look to, the, look to Christ and live. But for believers here, if you points of application for you. Are you standing firm in the faith? Are you being blown by every wind of doctrine, everything that the co-worker tells you about? Oh, I wonder if there's any validity to that. And, and to be reading error and studying error, be careful not to be blown by every wind of doctrine. And as a new church, now beginning morning services here, and, and we, we must stand firm, brethren, in doctrine. We must stand firm in what the Word of God teaches and not cave in to the, to, to the world that would say to, to make, make it easier, whip this page out, or we don't really need Romans 1. We need to stand firm in the faith and we need to stand firm in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. So, further application. He says to hold to the traditions. The traditions is, are the truth. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of the word of God. Do you love the truth? Do you long to open up your Bible and to read it as God's word to you? Do you long to meditate upon the word of God? Do you long to hear the word preached? When you hear of a Bible study... Do you long to want to go that your soul might be built up, that your soul might be edified, that you might have your faith strengthened in the truth? Can you say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day and all the night. Maybe some of us need to change some of our habit patterns. Maybe some of us need to change what we put as a priority when we first wake up in the morning. I'm not trying to preach legalism here. I'm just trying to give you encouragement because we live in a day when distractions abound. Emails and cell phones and regular phones and televisions and newspapers and all of this stuff is buying for your attention. But will you say, no, I need to go to the Lord first and see what He has to say to me. Then I can interpret and decipher and discern all of these other sources of information that are all around me. Do you love the truth? Make use of the means of grace. Make use of prayer meetings. Make use of, of hearing the word in Bible studies. And then stand firm. And brethren, standing firm, um, don't mistake it, does not mean being idle. Well, I'm standing firm. <laughs> it does not mean that. I'd like to take your attention to Philippians chapter 3 as I read a familiar passage. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul writing says, 
Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We must press on. We must keep the goal in view. We must keep the Lord Jesus Christ in our mind's eye as we continue and as we press on through this life. I have a short, very short illustration here I'd like to read for you about keeping your eyes on the goal. An Irish runner uh, by the name of Eman, um, strange name here, but he held the world record for a 1,500-meter run, and he was running a qualifying heat at the World Indoor Track in Indianapolis. This was in 1987. With two and a half laps left, he tripped and he fell. But then he got up, and he actually made up the speed so that he was in third place. The top three make the finals. Okay, this is just a heat. With 20 yards left in the race, he was in third place, good enough to qualify. He looked over his shoulder to the inside, and seeing no one, he let up. But another runner, charging hard and on the outside, passed him a yard before the finish line and eliminated him from the finals. This man's great comeback effort was rendered worthless by taking his eyes off the finish line. It's tempting to let up when the sights and sounds around us look favorable, but we finish well in the Christian race only when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. May that be true for each of us. That is my prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and even the commands that are therein. We thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you that salvation is all of you. And and yet, Lord, you have given us things to do and that we are to stand firm and to not compromise and to hold fast to the truth. We thank you for the comfort and hope that you do give us. We thank you that that comfort and hope is real. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to bless our efforts here at this church to promote this truth to preach the gospel in evangelism and our outreaches, to preach the gospel even in the, the, the street fair coming up in a few weeks when we have opportunities to share with tens of thousands of people walking by our booth. Lord, I pray that we would never become content to preach the gospel to ourselves only in here, but that we would be diligent to promote and to preach it outside of these walls. We pray for any here, O oh Lord, who do not know you, We ask that you'd have mercy on their souls and that even now you would be effectually calling them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with us now as we continue to worship and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.